Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On the energy side, um, please don't let me scare you out of any of your oil or gas positions, but this uh, dispute between the Emirates, UAE, and Saudi Arabia uh, is troublesome because UAE position is that they want to have their base period, which dates all the way back to 2018, increase from 3.1 million barrels a day to 4 million barrels a day. And their logic for that is that they've expanded their productive capacity and uh, they, uh, the, the agreement, OPEC plus, uh, OPEC plus Russia plus other uh, not OPEC producing countries is designed to go through next April. So Saudi Arabia and Russia worked out a deal where they were going to extend the agreement through the end of 22, another nine months or eight months beyond next April. And UAE would not agree to it because they wanted their baseline increase from 3.1 to 4. Presumably, if they uh, had, you know, 3.7 or 3.8, they'd be happy. The problem with doing that is that other countries would come in and ask for the same treatment. So uh, they weren't able to have an agreement. The initial impact in the oil market was positive under the theory that what they're what they had been doing and plan to do uh, is to meet once a month virtually, not in person, and increase the amount of uh, capacity put on the market by four hundred thousand barrels. So you do four hundred in August and, and the remaining months of the year and uh, you get you get uh, well, I don't know, five times 400 or 2 million barrels a day restored. At 2 million barrels a day restored, absent some lockup, there's no question with the inventory drawdowns that the oil market is undersupplied. Hence, Brent, you know, has gotten into the 70s. WTI has gotten into the 70s. Um, this dispute has the potential to degenerate. I wouldn't rate it as more in a 10%, 15% probability, but the Saudis have been known when their judgment and leader of OPEC status is questioned to uh, say, okay, uh, we'll just forget about production restraints and produce our capacity. That, in effect, is what happened last February because the price of oil was taking a shellacking uh, well ahead of the lockdown, maybe an anticipation of lockdown, but the dispute then was between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Russia said that they did not believe in reducing production because at that time oil was pretty high, and the Russians took the position that by holding the price of oil higher, you're just enabling U.S. shale, um, and and the Saudis were unhappy with that, and so they began to price their oil uh, in a way that 
would take market share away from Russian producers. And then, of course, the uh, the uh, the lockdown happened, and then we got to May, where the market was oversupplied. There was a time in May where if you had WTI, you had to pay someone uh, twenty dollars to take it, uh, and and then engineered to a certain extent by the Trump administration, OPEC Plus put agreement back together again, and oil had gotten down to twenty dollars. And it's worked its way back to 75. So any chink in the armor between uh, the OPEC, you know, like between the Saudis and the Emirates, uh, is is a, a bit of an issue. Um, you would think this would get settled, but the, these OPEC meetings are supposed to only last an hour or two. They're kind of prepped by staffs ahead of time. So they deferred last uh, Thursday and they deferred Friday and they waited all over the weekend and then they decided there was no sense of getting together Monday because the UAE line was uh, was firm. So I don't quite know what happens now. You can see that the oil market's a bit nervous. The market for oil and gas stocks is you know a bit nervous. Um, we'll see how it goes. My friends in the business, some of whom. Uh, spent a lot more time following this than I do, uh, all say, you know, 10% chance or not, not a significant chance that this turns into a price route. But uh, that, that's not Saudi's interest. It's not Russia's interest, but still something to watch. Um, we covered natural gas last week, and uh, just a reprise on that uh, <clears throat> for people who might not have been on last week. Um, natural gas market is impacted by oil, I suppose. Uh, uh, LNG, traditional LNG pricing has been uh, at 15% of, of the price of oil. So if the price of oil is 60, 15% uh, would be, uh, uh, be $9. Uh, the latest contract that have been renegotiated for contracted LNG have been done at around 10%, so 60 to $6. Price of LNG got as low as $4 in July last year, got all the way up to like the mid-20s uh, by January. I personally, and I think most uh, people I read, uh, we're expecting it maybe not to go back to four dollars, but to go back to five dollars instead. Instead, it's hanging in at eleven or twelve. So it's really behaved very well. Now that's a spot market which only includes about twenty percent of all the LNG traded. Eighty percent of the market is done uh, on uh, contract levels. LNG is very hard to store either in ships or in tanks. But when it's in oversupply, the people with the firm contracts. Uh, sell into the spot market. So, and the alternative happens uh, when when the market is short. People have to bid for cargos. So the market is short now, and uh, that's good. Uh, would an oil price decline, significant oil price decline, be good for LNG? No, it'd be poor for LNG. With these prices, in terms of the impact on the U.S. market, LNG is around. Uh, 10%, well, maybe 11%, 11 or 12% of all U.S. gas produced. 
around 11 bees a day versus 90 uh, U.S. production. Uh, it is the growth part of the market. Uh, the LNG export facilities under construction will increase that 11 to like 14 or 15. An LNG is very strong. It gets, you know, the capacity utilization is, uh, you know, close to 100%. Last, last July, when LNG was very weak, LNG, I think the lowest week I saw was, or can remember, is around four bees a day. So it definitely has an LNG has an impact on our market. Um, the other um, parts of our market for space heating that depends on the weather. Industrial is kind of flat, uh, and then the other one is power consumption or use for making fuel. I'm uh, making power. Uh, wind and solar, when you put them in, operate you know in these airhead auctions at very low bid prices because there's no incremental cost. So that means uh, gas turbines are less likely to run. So gas demand for power has been kind of flat. And in time, to the extent there's more wind and solar, it'll actually not only flat, but go down. So, and then you've got to worry about supply. Uh, I know I say it all the time, but of the, third, of the 90 bees of gas production, 35 was from the Marcellus and the Utica, and that didn't even exist 10 years ago. So uh, <clears throat> the thing to do is to watch the Marcellus and the Utica. Um, the other big source of natural gas is produced alongside oil. Uh, that that from the Permian's probably, I don't know, another 9 or 10 bees a day. So, uh, But that's going to be flat. Uh, there, there isn't too much likelihood of that oil production or gas production increasing. So you know, is 350 an equilibrium price? I mean, the lowest gas prices ever reported in the last two or three decades or last year. But I mean, you're now, even with backwardation, you're, you're in kind of a $3 gas market in the current month is 350. So all that's good news for the gas stocks. In terms of uh, valuation, um, uh, you know, I think all these Companies, uh, the oil companies, Pioneer, EOG, Diamondback, they'll all be a little weak while this OPEC stuff gets sorted out. I, I think that even though a gas company isn't as much impacted, I think they'll be a little weak. So if you wanted to add to a position, you're probably going to have a chance. Uh, <clears throat> the only other thing I'd say about energy is uh, Texas is trying to cope with not having a replay of the five days in February where, you know, like a quarter of the population lost their power, had no heat, uh, frozen pipes and whatnot. Uh, it doesn't appear to be anything other than uh, trying to uh, 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 take kind of half measures to not have it happen again. I think what you can, and I don't own the stock and found it, but generally I know a number of you on the phone own it. I mean, what that gives the homeowner is some protection against blackouts. If I had to predict over the next five, ten years, uh, there will be more blackouts, both in the summer and in the winter. So I kick myself for not buying the stock, but uh, it's pretty high value now. So, uh, but, but it's certainly strategic. Is uh, makes a great deal of sense. And with that, while we're on mostly macro stuff, I, I think the uh, 
the news on uh, Mike's side of the uh, Mike's industries is uh, the impact of China, and especially, and to check with Mike earlier today on uh, how it's pronounced, but Didi, the, the Uber of China, uh, came public on uh, fairly short notice, apparently uh, pushed by uh, private equity investors, mostly uh, located, well, that's a little unfair. Uber is a large owner because Uber competed with BD for ride-hailing in China and lost and then merged into BD. And then I think SoftBank is also a large owner, so I shouldn't blame it on U.S. private equity funds. But they clearly hurried up with their IPO, and it's down significantly because Chinese regulators are uh, are uh, complaining about uh security of the information that uh, because they're providing this wide hailing service is uh is available uh to uh to Didi and and uh and, and may be available to people uh outside the reach of the Chinese government. And with that, uh turn it over to Mike who knows a lot more about this uh this situation. Thanks Hunt. So this this is um I mean, it ought to be concerning for U.S.-based investors that have positions in Chinese companies. Um, I, I will, well, let's start with the IPO. So this was the largest U.S. listing of a Chinese company since Alibaba. They raised $4.4 billion um, on the New York Stock Exchange just last week. I think it was Wednesday was their IPO date, uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Um now, a few weeks before their IPO, the Chinese Cyberspace Administration um, did suggest to the company that they do a thorough self-examination of their network security. Um, you know, no, no one really expected that that was or should have put a halt to their IPO. Um, and some things have been covered since then that sort of point in the direction as to why um, and what the motivation is. So I'll try to break that down as best as I can based on the news sources. So, sun, so Sunday, the Cyberspace Administration announced the ban of those of downloading those apps in the App Store. Um, this, the, the, the citation was that DD's collection and usage of personal information um, was in violation of, of what they expected. Um, it was interesting because the action was very swift. They announced an investigation on Friday and took action on Sunday, um, which again should be raising red flags as to what's really going on here. Um, so, you know, taking a look at um, but before we dig any further into it, it, this isn't the first time that the government's kind of intervened in some of these uh, tech companies. And we've, we've actually talked about some of them on, on this call in the past year. Um, Tencent, I don't think we talked about this. This would have been 2018, so it would have been before I was joining the calls. But um, China froze approvals for new games. Um, and, well, they eventually... Uh, allowed the company to continue to release new games, uh, new games, uh, Tencent did make a strategic shift to focus more on, uh, on business related software rather than entertainment related software. So there's one example of like the, the government kind of 
throwing some elbows saying, hey, you should be doing this, not that. Um, probably more concerning than that was the Ant IPO, which we, we spoke about last summer, um, just before it was supposed to happen. Um, um, the Chinese regulators um, um, blocked the IPO, caught, basically has, have caused the company to have to restructure. Um, the company might still IPO, but will take a 60% haircut in valuation. Um, and ultimately, like uh, Jack Ma went missing for a little while. Um, it, it was a very, uh, very odd <laughs> set of circumstances. So here we are with, again, the Chinese government getting their finger in the way of, of a lot of their large international operating businesses. Um, the next, the next couple of things that happened were um, the CEOs of both ByteDance and Pinduo, two of the most successful um, Chinese technology companies today, uh, they, they resigned. Pinduo was really interesting because it revolutionized Chinese e-commerce by building direct-to-consumer marketplace. Um, and ByteDance isn't just a Chinese success story. Um, it's the owner of TikTok, which obviously was front and center in the news with Trump banning TikTok and, and forced, uh, attempting to force a sale of the Western assets, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this is um, really signs that um, the government is taking a more aggressive approach to its international businesses. So the Wall Street Journal had a good article on this and um, basically says that the, the Cyber States Administration of China remains wary of, of the ride-hailing company, Didi's troves of data, potentially falling into foreign hands as a result of the public disclosures associated with the U.S. listing. So, um, so it, it's I guess the, the, the conclusion that, that they're drawing here is that um, Beijing's ambitions for Chinese companies are less important than its, um, than, than its uh, control or the amount of control that it aims to seek. And I think 10 years ago, that was a different story. Um, Chinese companies were encouraged to be to, to grow through both domestically and internationally. Um, but under Xi Jinping, I think that there's more of a priority on establishing central government control. Um, and we're now seeing some of the effects of that here. So I, I think it's a cause of concern for investors. And I think if you subscribe to the um, portfolio management theory that we've sort of been um, talking through of having a limited number of stocks, essentially uh, fewer eggs in the basket and watching the basket, I, I, I wouldn't... Um, feel comfortable with the level of knowledge and clarity that we have of Chinese markets in having one of those tens being uh, a Chinese company. Just going to ask Mike a question, uh, which uh, we covered earlier in a quick phone call, and that is one of our one of the really important parts of the chip business. Uh, is Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, and and what a key question now is with the Chinese government or the Communist Party being much tougher on tech companies. How much 
exposure does Taiwan Semiconductor have? And here, we're not talking about, you know, an invasion of Taiwan, but they will be under enormous pressure from both the United States and China to locate chip-making facilities uh, either in mainland China or in the United States. And uh, also, of course, under enormous pressure, I mean, they built their position where they uh, are the place to make chips rather than Intel, and really probably rather than Samsung in Korea, based on their technology and their ability to make thinner and thinner chips. So uh, Mike is extremely interested in Taiwan Semiconductor, owns a stock, you know, obviously something like NVIDIA, who doesn't make their own chips, very dependent on Taiwan Semiconductor. So I think with at least some of the remainder of the six or seven minutes we have, just like to have Mike cover, you know, the kind of um, position or dilemma that the Taiwan Semiconductor Management Board has trying to keep the United States happy and also keeping China happy and also continuing to lead in terms of technology of making chips. It's it's a really good point, Hunt, because the, the the U.S. is trying to convince China, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor not to expand in China, and that's sort of a very difficult thing to do because not a lot of countries have the um, the low cost of labor, the potential government incentives, and um, the talent pool required to have a high end fab. The flip side is China wants that to be in China, and China thinks that Taiwan is China. Um, so there, there's a lot going on here. It puts Taiwan Semiconductor at risk, but I think as Hunt's pointed out on this call um, over the past year, it also puts Apple at risk. And Apple has done a very good job in spite of these challenges to maintain good relations. But I think as these, um, as and assuming that the Chinese Communist, Communist Party continues to take a greater role in affecting global business, we could see some problems there as well. So ultimately it's gonna, it, it potentially could affect everyone um, that is doing business over there. Uh, so again, back to that portfolio theory. If you're if you're holding a relatively small number of positions, it's uh, it's fairly easy to understand your own exposure and then make decisions as to how you want to hedge that risk. If you, um, like in my case, what, what we do is we hedge our Apple position, not ready to sell it, but it's definitely hedged at this point, um, or not just not hold those sorts of positions. Um, fortunately, there's thousands of stocks out there, and you don't have to, um, you know, don't have to be stuck holding one of them. Yeah. Well, some of the some of the large U.S. tech companies, Microsoft, for example, uh, Google, uh, Amazon, really don't have uh, as much direct Apple exposure, as much China exposure as say Apple does. Uh, or, uh, or possibly Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, as I recall, the Google people decided that they simply wouldn't uh, be active in China. 
uh, and that kind of created the opportunity to buy the can't recall exactly how Microsoft has handled the situation. Um, Amazon, of course, is making a huge push in uh, in, uh, in India. But if you think about uh, the Amazon position that that might have in the world's second largest economy, uh, that that basically uh, was uh, was taken, you know, not only by Alibaba, but by some of the people who compete with Alibaba, effectively, you know, doing doing what Amazon has done in this country. And with that, you know, I'm I'm hitting the high points. We'll leave it uh, for Mike to do some of the detail. Sure. So I think it would be worthwhile that we do a uh, kind of a breakdown of the big tech companies' exposure to China. Um, some of it is revenue-based exposure. Some of it, like in the case of Apple, it's supply chain exposure. Um, remember Apple, uh, a lot of Apple supply chain, the majority of it is run by Foxconn, which is, again, a Taiwanese company, but has the majority of its operations in China. Um, I think we could probably justify doing um, a couple minutes on each one of the big tech companies next week or, or it's our schedule here um, to see kind of where those exposures lie. Absolutely. The uh, the only other thing I cover is, that I think is newsworthy, and and we will get into China next week unless something some other news intervenes that uh, seems, seems to be take precedent. It should take precedent. Uh, the 10-year U.S. bonds quite remarkable. Um, in February, it got up to the 170 range, and I thought the next stop was two, and then by the end of the year, it'd be two and a half or three. I mean, my logic was that the Fed would curtail its bond buying. It buys $120 billion a month, uh, $40 billion of mortgage bonds, $80 billion of uh, U.S. Treasuries. Seems to me a Pretty logical thing to do to say the uh, mortgage bond market is and the housing market is kind of over overheated. Uh, prices have gone up too much. It looks a little bubble-like. Uh, this would be a, a good thing to introduce more stability to not stop buying 40 billion a month or you know 408 billion a year of mortgage bonds, and that to the extent that the the overspending by our government wasn't being monetized. Eventually, you'd have interest rates normalized. Well, exactly the opposite has happened. As of this morning, the 10-year bond's down around 130 or something. Um, so uh, what does this mean? Um, the, um, I don't think it means that the Federal Reserve has you know, changed its stance. Um, uh, they they say that they they want to keep a very easy monetary policy and quantitative easing, which is what buying these bonds means, uh, in order to get more people back to work. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, e 
even in the Biden administration, even the progressive side of the Democratic Party, the uh, enhanced employment, unemployment benefits run out in September. So you would think that as we get into October, November, December, uh, you would begin to see bigger gains in not only employment, but in uh, what they call labor force participation. And that certainly in that time period, uh, you you uh, the quantitative easing would stop. I mean, the progression you'd expect is they stop buying mortgage bonds and they stop buying U.S. Treasuries, but then uh, they reinvest the uh, the interest proceeds and the uh, and the the you know the repayments so that they keep the balance sheet flat. Then eventually they decide to stop doing that reinvestment. You expect that progression, and you'd expect that when that happens. Uh, interest rates are artificial, you know, you think artificially low, they go up. Now, whenever we say what would they go up to, it depends a little bit on the spread between short-term treasuries, Fed funds, say, and the, uh, and the, uh, say the 10-year bond because a market participant, a hedge fund or a bank for its own account, Borrow almost unlimited sums of money in the repo market and reinvest it in in long bonds and make the spread. So, if the ten-year bond went to two and a half percent and Fed funds were uh, were still, you know, in the you know effectively nothing or twenty-five basis points, how much that goes up would be limited by people uh, acting to uh, to uh, capture that spread. Uh, It'd be a lot easier for the Federal Reserve to uh, stop QE or find these bonds than it would be to actually move the Fed funds rate up. Um, the, uh, they take a risk of inflation. Now, there's no question, as we've discussed before, we've had inflation of asset price, with stock prices being high if you didn't have, you know, the 10-year bond at 135 or wherever it is. I think not. Uh, Inflation of real estate values, residential housing, and, and, and things like that. Um, obviously, some of that's going on. Whether or not the uh, consumer price index or wholesale price index, you know, tied to things like price of a quart of milk or the price of a gallon of gasoline, whether or not that will show any lift. Remember, the Fed wants to have those measures be around two percent. They said that they'll sanction having it be over 2% for a while because they've been trying to get it to 2% for several years. It's been under. Uh, is a real question mark. This this movement of of the long bonds from 175, the 10-year bond to 135, I don't think of as a very good sign. Somehow, the bond market which has a reputation for being a better predictor than the stock market is seeing something out there May be that as uh, stimulus ends, that uh, people's behavior has changed, and that will hurt the economy. It may be that uh, the market has somehow lost confidence in in the Biden administration. Um, Maybe they're concerned about uh, progressives getting the upper hand. I don't know what exactly is going on, but that 40 basis point. Uh, move down in in the in the ten year bond is not necessarily good news, 
And with that, we'll get into more China next week. And in the meantime, everyone stay healthy and stay safe. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.